This is David C. Baker, author of The Business of Expertise, How Entrepreneurial Experts Convert Insight to Impact and Wealth. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com, which is also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. And marketingbookpodcast.com is also where you can send me a message with any comments, suggestions, or recommendations for the show. I love hearing from listeners like you from around the world. I'm also on Twitter. My Twitter handle is marketingbook or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett. I respond to every single message I get from listeners, so please introduce yourself. And now a word from our sponsor, which is where I work. It's a business-to-business marketing agency called Artillery. The companies that call in Artillery are typically frustrated with traditional interruptive marketing's declining ability to generate good sales leads and are overwhelmed with how best to use digital and content marketing to break through to the modern informed buyer. So if your company is struggling with transitioning to modern marketing, our all hands workshop, buyer persona interviews and content marketing plan may be just what you need to get unstuck and on the right track toward getting more qualified leads and more profitable sales. For more information, visit marketingbookpodcast.com. Now, On to today's interview. Today, we welcome David C. Baker to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his book, The Business of Expertise, How Entrepreneurial Experts Convert Insights to Impact and Wealth. And after the interview, David is going to tell you how you can win a copy of his book. David C. Baker is an author, speaker, and consultant in the expertise marketplace. He has written five books advised over 900 firms and keynoted conferences in over 30 countries. His work has been discussed in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Fast Company, Forbes, USA Today, Business Week, and Inc. Magazine. And just a few interesting facts, he's an airplane and helicopter pilot, has taught high-performance motorcycle racing, and is a member of Mensa. David, congratulations on the business of expertise, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Uh, thank you. I wish you hadn't said that last one because now people are picturing some nerd flying an airplane or something with a pocket protector. Right. Well, you know, I found that out about you. And I, I should say for folks who are not familiar with Mensa, it's the largest and oldest high IQ society in the world. And their members <laughs> score at the 98th percentile or higher on IQ tests. So wh- what I was going to say was, you know, David C. Baker walks into a, a room full of people. He's very likely the smartest guy in the room. <laughs> oh, I don't like where this is headed already because yeah, well, that's it's definitely not true, but thank you. Well, you know, having that, I can't imagine what that feeling must be like. Trust me when I, when I tell you that, but I'm going <laughs> to need you to kind of downshift a little bit for me. So I appreciate you doing that. So uh, before we get started, I just have to, this is the first time we've ever spoken, but I have been following you for years and you've carved out a 
part of my consciousness and I can't get rid of you. So I hung out my shingle and started my agency in the summer of 2001. And that first week, a friend of mine, George Tisdale, who's a listener to this show, he sent me an email. He goes, oh, you got to check out this Recourses guy. And I went to your website, David C. Baker, which is your, your website is recourses.com. And I downloaded a bunch of helpful tip sheets. And I thought, man, this is really good. And, and you know, white papers and stuff. And you never sent me a dime, by the no. way. Just, I, I just want to insert yes, that, but keep going. Right. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and it just made a whole lot of sense. And the worst thing that happened to me is I, I, I gained some success early on. <laughs> and there are several parts of your book that it's, it's almost as if I was looking for my name printed in your book because as I was reading, there's one part at the end where you said, sometimes your own success is your biggest enemy because it makes you fat and happy and takes away the hunger. And anyway, I, I would go back from time to time and look at your site. You had a, events. And then about three years ago, you did a webinar with our mutual friend, Michael Gass. Oh, yeah, it was sure. terrific. And I downloaded it, and I even looked at the slides again today. And so two years ago, I saw you speak at the Inbound Conference, and that's where you said you were worried that HubSpot was actually going to throw you off the stage because you might stay, say some things that were <laughs> controversial. Yeah, that's right. Boy, did that they get didn't our attention. Pull me off. Yeah, well, of course, they didn't invite me back the next year, so maybe they, they didn't pull me off the stage, but that's the next best yeah, thing, right? Yeah. Well. Boy, but yeah. you know what? I, I, I just a few months ago, I looked back through my notes of what you had talked about. And then I, I heard you on the Inbound Agency Journey podcast with my friends that oh, host yeah. that. And then I started listening to your relatively new podcast with, with Blair Enns recently. And then I got a LinkedIn invitation from David C. Baker and I was like, Oh my God. <laughs> so then talked about having you on the show and I read your book and there was a passage on page 232 that again, it says, I was looking for my name in the sentence. It said, it's quite possible that your entire career might benefit from a significant shift that may even terrify you. <laughs> I read this book and like of the last 15 years of things I've been hearing you say and read, it's like, all right, damn it. I have got to make that big change and I'm, I'm going to do it. <laughs> are you going to do it? Okay. So so, don't tell me what the change is, but when are you going to do it by? What's the public date? So I can check out your website on this date and it'll be the new before you. Before the end of 2017. Okay. But here's the thing. You said I never gave you a dime. Damn it, Baker. Now I'm going to have to hire you. Ah, <laughs> uh, not necessarily. This was the longest no. sale in history. Yeah. I mean, my whole, my whole approach to this stuff is like to be as useful as possible to people knowing that most of them should never hire me. It's like, we're not a fit for whatever reason, but I love being helpful to people. And, you know, in the process too, because I'm not very good at sales for myself. So I don't have to go out and beat the bushes. Like if it resonates with somebody, they'll call me and then we'll get a chance to work together. So I actually, I love hearing your story because it's like, we've been connected for 16, 17 years. And, and my goal, actually, I, I actually think about this all the time is when I write something, or if I'm talking with you like this, I want people to feel like I've got one of those nest cams in their office. I want them to feel like I know their world so well that I, I, I can speak their language in a way. And, and that's really one of the most powerful things about good positioning is that you start to know a particular segment, vertical or horizontal, so well that that people just, they're just drawn to what you're, you say because you understand their world. That's, that's just such a big part of it. Well, you've done it because after reading the book, I thought, you know, I just can't hide from this guy anymore. 
Okay. There it you makes go. You... I know where you live too. You're somewhere in Virginia. <laughs> I can right. hunt you down. That's right. That's right. So the other expression that just came to mind, I, I, this is probably the most emotional interview I'm going to do, but what, the, the notion of when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And so you talk about having a, you know, a, a nest cam or something, but it's, all I could think about was, as I was reading this book, was Obi-Wan Kenobi <laughs> whispering yeah. to Luke Skywalker, just use the force, use the force. Yeah. So I hope sometimes when you feel like you're not getting the traction you, you want, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of us out there. So let me start with just one excerpt from the book, and then we're going to get into some of the key points. Pretend that you're invited to give a keynote to a major conference. The person introducing you says, next, we welcome the name of your firm, you insert your firm name, a leading expert on your positioning. So fill in your positioning. How would you fill in that last blank? And after the conference, how would you keep getting smarter and making more money from your expertise? That's why this book exists, to help you understand expertise a bit differently and then to position that expertise brilliantly for yourself. So, David, this is the first book I've had on the show in two and a half years, I think, that's really specifically for entrepreneurs. There's lots of great books out there about entrepreneurs, but as I've just explained, I, I, I had to have you. <laughs> I had to yeah. have you on the show. <laughs> so if you're not an entrepreneur, there are still enormously valuable lessons. And I would also like to say there are a lot of people listening who, yeah, I'm not an entrepreneur, but I, you know what? You might become one one day, and it might, you might right. have to become one one day. But even more than that, you probably know an entrepreneur, and what we're going to talk about could be very helpful for them if you want to share this with them. Absolutely. So can you explain the significance of what I've never seen before at the beginning of a book? It was basically a non-forward by Derek <laughs> yeah. Sivers. Yeah, that actually really surprised me. You know, I I was almost done with the book, and so now it's like, okay, I need I need somebody to write the forward, and I've got some ideas, and some people turned me down. One of the people that turned me down was Derek, and and I was struck though. It didn't hurt my feelings at all. I've always liked his work. I, I like his style. Uh, I could never do what he does, but I've I've always admired it from afar. Didn't know him, but sent him an email, and. It, the fact that he turned it down didn't bother me, but really what struck me was the, the the two reasons why he turned it down. He said, I'm not sure I qualify as an entrepreneur because I haven't started anything in the last five years, and so I kind of have lost my entrepreneur card. That really that fascinated me. The other thing he said was, and I don't have the time to write your foreword, and I just chuckled to myself because it's like, guy, you know what? You just You just wrote this long thing to me. That's longer than the forward needs to be. And so that gave me this idea. It's like, well, I just said, Derek, can I just print this as the forward? And we'll just say forward not written by Derek Sivers. The world's first. And the first, right. Hopefully the world's, the world's first. first. I didn't really verify that. Forward. But we're in, we're in marketing, so we make shit up all the time, right? So <laughs> I just said that's the first. Probably is. Doesn't matter if it isn't. And he said, yeah, I love that idea. So, you know, unedited, I just put it in there. And that's how it came about. I, I, what I loved is doing something really different. That's, that's what I really loved about it. But I also was really struck by the fact that, that Derek said, I don't have time because 
I there are some things on my list, and if I keep doing all these things that I've been doing, I'll never get them done because I really do think, like we joked about Mensa, I think intelligence has very little to do with success these days, and formal schooling has even less to do with success. But I do think discipline is so much more important. And I love the fact that Derek was very public, very honest about the fact that, listen, if I'm not disciplined from here forward, I'm not going to meet my goals. And so I thought, oh, perfect, perfect, perfect forward. Yeah. And I've already thought about that one. Yesterday, I was invited to do a webinar for someone else. And I just thought, damn it. (laughs) Even the forward (laughs) is sticking in my head. So let's just, I wanted to cover some of the bigger points from the book. So there's what you call three foundational chapters, and then there's 16 chapters. So if we could, let's walk through some of the foundational chapters. And I'd like you to really just explain the, the first chapter title, which is Expertise Flows from Focus, which flows from positioning. Right. Yeah. And, you know, that's another place. And I think authors would, and you you certainly understand this and other authors would as well. It's like when you're writing something, it just takes a different shape that you can't really predict. And I was writing through this. I had all the chapters numbered consecutively, 19. And I thought, wait a second, David, this is like the first three are so much more important. Let's make them A, B, and C, and then we'll start the numbering after that. So the first one, which you just led the title, It really is absolutely a foundation for me. In fact, I was talking with a a New York Times columnist who we were chatting about something, and he had read the book, and he said, you know what? I would have named this book The Economic Value of Pattern Matching, which was a really interesting idea. I had not thought of that. And that's really what the first chapter talks about. So if we, we take those in reverse, what happens is positioning, it puts you in similar situations over and over again. That that process allows you to start noticing the pattern. So like in my case, I was working with lots of agencies and I noticed as I worked with one and then worked with another one the next week and another one the next week, I was seeing some things which only happened because I was focused and that allowed me to work with many agencies, which in turn allowed me to see the patterns. And all that leads to intelligence as applied to expertise because, and I don't think there's going to be much argument here, but almost all intelligence is an exercise in pattern matching. That's why even with young children who can't even speak yet and certainly can't read, we can hold up duck, duck, goose, and the goose doesn't match the pattern. They'll notice that. They'll point to the goose. That's reverse pattern matching. Pattern matching is the essence of intelligence. Pattern matching happens when you have many similar situations to to pay attention to. Similar situations happens when you have positioning that leads you to those similar situations. So that's what the first chapter is about. So unless you specialize, you're not going to have the opportunity to do very good pattern matching. Exactly. Right. So the next one, the next foundational chapter is about how expertise renders your work less interchangeable. And I think the interchangeable part is something a lot of entrepreneurs don't think about. They don't, right? Because they're really thinking, I was I was thinking about this point just a few minutes ago when I was driving back to my office this morning. I was thinking about how agencies or anybody in marketing, they listen to what's important and they listen particularly well to what's important when they are hired. Like we want to hire this kind of marketer. We want to hire this kind of agency or whatever it is. I know you have some some listeners who aren't in agencies. And then after two years, this same client that thought they hung the moon 
decides to leave, but the agency or their marketer doesn't listen to what they say then. Now it's like, oh, they're a bad client. We're not listening to them anymore because they don't like us. It's like we're so we don't listen very well to outside information. We filter it so heavily. This idea of interchangeability comes like this. So it's a very simple concept. The idea is that in a professional service context, uh, both parties need some control. So the expert needs some control and the client who hires the expert needs some control. We understand the control that that client has all the time because they can decide you know, to not give them materials or the time they need, fight the fee. In the end, they have the ultimate power, which is just to fire the expert or not hire the expert again. What controls does the expert have in that situation? The only control an expert has in a professional service situation is to withhold their expertise. So let's pretend, now we don't have to do that very often, and it's not as mean as it sounds, but let's pretend just for the sake of argument that the expert withholds their expertise at that moment. That's when the clock starts. And the clock is going tick, 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 tick. And until this client who didn't hire the expert finds what they deem to be a suitable expert, then that's how much control the expert has. If this client who didn't hire the expert can find what they deem to be many suitable substitutes, then the the, the, the expert had no power in that relationship. Very much which interchangeable. Means, yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's the point. They can't charge more. They can't push back. They can't be honest with the client and on and on. And, and I think a lot of people in professional services understand that innately, although they understand it better for other people than they do for themselves. We're really hard at, at self-positioning. Yeah, and agencies are the worst. Now, you mentioned agencies, but in the book, you talk about how this could apply to a medical practice or a architectural firm, engineering firm. Basically, I envision it as that section of the entrepreneurial world which has to do with expertise. So like, let's say you're setting up a store, that would not necessarily be, or maybe a, a, a filling station or a convenience store. That's not necessarily expertise, but this is for any entrepreneur, an accountant, consultant, that type. So the other thing that's interesting is you mentioned that if most of your contacts are within a 50 mile radius, you may not be trading on your expertise. Explain that. Yeah, and I don't think I could have said that 10 years ago. But now that the world has been Googleized, where these geographic barriers have largely disappeared, then we like we as clients, when we want to hire an expert, unless the service is specifically delivered in person, like, say, a medical practice, then we can hire an expert most anywhere. And so that has allowed us as buyers of expertise to be really, really specific. Like you and I could be having coffee somewhere and we could dream up this question we have and we could say, I'll bet you within 30 seconds, we could find somebody in the world through a Google search who knows exactly that answer, who is already an established expert on that. That's very different than what the world was like 10 years ago, especially 20 years ago where most of our expertise had to be local. If you think about professional service providers in the past, they needed to develop an expertise, define their expertise in a way that gave them sufficient opportunity within driving distance. That no longer is the case. And so it's and it's actually unfortunate because it's it's meant that we are our expertise is so deep that it's hard to be 
it's hard to have a broad context to be relevant sometimes. It's a, it's a bigger challenge mm-hmm. for us. But the fact, it's not going to change, right? We're, our expertise is getting more and more narrowly defined every year. Yeah, I don't think this internet thing is a fad. It's just a hunch. I, probably not, yeah. I mean, Al Gore was onto something, <laughs> it, it turns <laughs> that's, out. That's yeah. right. The, the last foundational part was really, really important. You talk about excess opportunity yields a price premium for expertise. Right. Yeah, and I think this one is is particularly difficult in developed cultures. So uh, nations with, you know, first world countries where opportunity is almost a drug. So it's really really difficult for entrepreneurs to say no to opportunity. Their first reaction is to build the necessary capacity to milk this opportunity that comes their way. And so in the end, they, they find themselves saying no very infrequently. And because they don't say no, then they, they're faced with this massive capacity and they wake up one day and they realize that they have built this huge machine that is consuming food around the clock. It's this big machine to feed. And that's when they frequently, it's another time when they will compromise their positioning to keep feeding this machine. So what's the right size for an expert firm? It's always smaller than your opportunity. That preserves your ability to say no. The delta between your capacity and the opportunity out there gives you the opportunity to say no, which keeps prices high. It means you don't have to work with jerks. It means that you can sell the things that you're really, really good at and not pretend quite as much. There's always going to be a little pretending, but there shouldn't be as much pretending as much experts do regularly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So let's move on to one other part that was just really painful for me to read, but uh, because it was so deeply... <laughs> An exercise in pain for you. This is like going to the dentist or interview David. Which should I do? But it was good pain. In other words, it was, again, the, the bombs were bursting pretty close. What I mean, Dave, is I, I was made uncomfortable for all the right reasons. Okay? Okay. So explain the difference between a hobby, a job, and an enterprise as it relates to an entrepreneurial venture, and how do you know which one you're really in? Ah, well, a hobby is something that you don't want anybody else to know how much money you're spending on, and you hide the packages when they come, you know, like and... photography or motorcycle or... Oh, no, let's not get personal <laughs> here. Let's not... This is... Let's talk about you, not me, okay? Or my wife's horse. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, now there is a that is a definite hobby. Those talk about eating an eating machine. Yeah. So a hobby costs you money. Mm-hmm. All right. An enterprise at the other end of that extreme makes you money. So after paying you a fixed regular amount, there is profit left over that could be reinvested in the business or distributed to the owner and so on. In the middle is a job. That's where we have a set a, a set of expectations and a set amount of money that you're making and there's this even exchange between the two. A lot of entrepreneurs think they have an enterprise when what they really have is a fairly uncertain job where their income bounces up and down and they're treating it like a job or even even larger enterprises where there are other employees they it's really that like if, if we were going to apply that to to me it would be the david show with a bunch of helpers that's not an enterprise so i try to draw the distinction there because i'm trying to make people filthy rich 
that's the second goal. The first goal is I want them to do really effective work for clients, but I also want them to be filthy rich. I'm not trying to make people better hobbyists or give them better jobs. I want them to be very successful entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. Well, related to that, very interesting to me was when you talked about how your expertise business exists for three reasons in this order, to make money, to move mm -hmm. the needle on behalf of clients, and to create a culture where people can thrive. And you go on to say, that if, you, if you can add the fourth criteria to enjoy your work, hey, more power to you. <laughs> but you, you say, be grateful and not demanding about it. Talk about your issue with the concept of pursuing happiness and following one's passion. Oh, man, now you've just set me off. You've just pressed a big button. And wouldn't surprise me if there's this big gap that gets edited out here next because I kind of go off the rails. I I just hate the phrase. Oh, there's a lot of phrases I hate, but one of the, one of the phrases I hate is is just follow your heart and success will be yours. And it's like that is such bull. It's like there are so many people following their hearts and starving. It's like following your heart has very little to do with it. That that's just true, okay. But re what really gets me emotional about it, honestly, is that I grew up in a third world world culture. I grew up in with a tribe of Mayan Indians. My parents were medical missionaries, so we lived in this very remote Mayan village in the highlands of Guatemala. No electricity, no running water, and if those people, if that was a mantra for them, then they would have just starved. Because do you think how many of them do you think? loved getting up in the morning and going out and, and tilling corn on the mountainside and not and hoping to not fall out of the field and die, you know. It's, it's somehow we've taken the advantages we have as first world nations and and we've turned that into this demand. So like, ah, oh, well, I make good money here, but I don't love my work or there's something difficult about my boss. I'm just gonna quit. It's just like such a selfish perspective. And I think a lot of people are making sloppy positioning decisions around their expertise because they they don't want to do the hard work of being an expert. And to me, what I'm in love with is knowing what the heck I'm talking about. And I happen to love that. Now, I don't think there's any benefit in hating what you do at all. I mean, I really want people to love what they do. But that to me, that happens if the other things are right. If you're making money, if you're moving the needle, if you have a great culture, you will enjoy what you do. Chase the other things and the enjoyment will come. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you talk about a couple other things that really resonated with you. You talked about how you've tasted competence and you never want to go back to the alternative. And another thing that, that was related to that, you talk about the addiction of expertise or worse, appearing incompetent has always been a deep fear. That one got underlined twice. <laughs> that really resonated yeah. with me. We've all experienced that, yeah. right? I mean, in different settings. I, I mean, for me, it's standing in front of a crowd and saying something, and it turns out not to be true, and somebody rightfully calls me out on it, and then I stumble around and look like an idiot. That's the that's the, that's what sticks in my mind. I mean, we all have those, and and if those are burned in our brains, we we like they serve as motivation to not be incompetent any more than we have to be. I'm not talking about being arrogant. I'm talking about being competent and kindly competent, and and knowing what we're talking about. That's what people are paying you for, right? Yeah. Well, let's just send you further over the edge, David. What's the difference <laughs> between an expert and a guru? Oh man, you're just you're just really hoping to set me off. Well, 
I need. I should turn that around and ask you. What's your first reaction when you see Guru, like somebody's Twitter handle or maybe on their website? How do you react when you hear the word Guru? One word: charlatan. Yeah, yeah. Me, it's somebody who's not a guru, who's self-possessed as one or something. I just what what is it that I can't stand it? Yeah, I don't understand. I can't even understand it really. I, I cannot figure out why it sets me off, but. The, the guru thing really does it and it shouldn't really because it's not all that different from being an expert and I really believe in the concept of somebody being an expert maybe a guru just it implies to me that there are there are shortcuts to being looked up to by other people and your expertise I'm not sure but it, yeah it just it kind of bothers me yeah it, it, and, and for me when I see it in the marketing world it kind of smacks of get rich quick yeah fraudulent right. type of thing so we talked about positioning what are some of the common positioning mistakes that entrepreneurial experts make? One of them for sure is to keep changing their positioning. So, and technology has allowed that. It's made it easier to do. So when they're pitching a particular sort of account that may or, you know, may want to buy their expertise, then they'll change the message. And so it's like, and, and they couldn't take the same deck presentation deck and change the name they have to really change a lot of the messaging that's one of them for sure another is maybe landing on some points that may be true but are not all that unique i'll tell you it's not like experts are bad at positioning because they're generally not they're generally really good at positioning what they're bad at is positioning themselves because they are the, the one of the images in the book is 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 like you're inside your own jar. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. It's, yeah. You said we can't read our own label from inside the jar. Oh, yeah, that's true. Like I'm as bad at it for myself as other. It's like if these experts could hire each other to do positioning rather than to try to do it for themselves, it probably would be a much better result, I think. But it's not usually an issue of competence on their part. It's more frequently an issue of courage because, well, at first, when we think about positioning, we think about all the work we want to do. It becomes this blue sky dreaming sort of perspective. But that's not really what positioning is. Positioning is starts with the work I'm not going to do because I'm not as good as my clients deserve me to be there. And so it becomes more of an exercise and exclusion. And that's very painful for people who are dying for every sort of opportunity to allude to what we talked about just a few minutes ago. Yeah, you mentioned, I think it was Blair Enns, you said he, he calls it like a an exercise in irrelevance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Blair, who's my podcast partner and a really good thinker, winwithoutpitching.com. That's that's what he talks about. It's really an exercise in becoming more and more irrelevant. And at first, you know, it's kind of a catchy phrase, so it makes you listen a little bit, but it's really true at the heart of it, becoming more and more irrelevant to a larger group of people. In the process, you're becoming much more relevant to a smaller group of people who are who who feel like you have a camera in their room and are willing to pay you good money to help solve their issues. Right. And I think it's important to mention Blair Ends a few times during the interview because I listen to your podcast and you know, if he doesn't get his props from you, you know, he he lets you yeah, let you know. He'll, quit. Yeah, he, he'll let you know about it. And so that's why it's funny. It's like listening to a, either an old married couple or a couple of feuding brothers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> on the show. So yeah. one other big point that I think is be very helpful for the entrepreneurs out there is if you could explain the difference between vertical and horizontal expertise. 
Sure. So when you are making a positioning decision about your expertise, you are faced with those two big categories. So vertical positioning would be aligned with a particular industry type. You know, we're used to the SIC, but it's nowadays we, we refer to it more as NAICS category. So like healthcare or tech or financial services or probably more narrow than that. So if you're focusing on a industry classification of some type, that's a vertical positioning. A horizontal positioning can be defined in a few more ways than that. So it might be a demographic. So maybe I'm helping to reach millennials or or maybe companies that are just starting or companies that are growing through a growth spurt or companies at a particular junction like an M&A junction, or it could be a practice area. So I'm doing maybe uh, crisis work for companies across all different vertical categories. So those are the two ways that you start to think about your positioning when you're narrowing it down, horizontal or vertical. Now, you say that like agencies, uh, they're the worst. They all want to be horizontal. Right. Most experts do want to be horizontal, for sure. I guess because it's more stimulating or they find it more interesting. But there are a couple downsides. You, You talked about how like if you have a vertical positioning and you're, let's say your client goes to another company, they're very likely to go to another company in that same vertical and possibly bring you along. Whereas let's say back to your example of the crisis communications person, you may help this person and then they go to another company that never has any crises. Yeah, exactly. And since we, most of us don't really have a, we have an a suitable positioning maybe. And then we don't really take, we don't work it through a great lead generation plan. We're depending quite a bit on referrals and also CMOs or anybody who might be hiring this particular expert. If it's not an agency, we rely on them to take us with them to their next job. And if you looked at at studies that LinkedIn has done, for instance, in most cases, people are going to another job within the same vertical. So the likelihood that they'll need you at the next vertical is greater if your positioning is vertical. But, you know, the flip side of that is that you are stuck in a particular vertical and many entrepreneurial experts are, they they want more variety than that. So there are lots of things to think about as you're making that choice. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the ways that you have found effective for entrepreneurs to demonstrate their expertise? I, well, you know, there's... I mentioned several at the beginning <laughs> with the uh, the effect of your work. Yeah. Well, right. Yeah. Uh, s- standing out on the sidewalk with a sandwich board, that's probably the least effective. So we could start with that okay. one, right? And then we fast forward past 20 or 30 of them that I've studied extensively and we get to the top and, and a book would, would still be, I mean, this may change in 10 years, but for the next 10 years, at least a real book. I don't mean you know, I don't mean a lot of the book stuff that's out there that's really not a book, but I mean a real book. Or imagine imagine you've got this expert and they're really well positioned, but they don't have time to do any lead generation. But imagine that they have one article a year in some big publication where somebody interviews them and they have they keynote one conference a year that would gather their prospects. That's all they have to do, right? They could skip all the rest of the lead generation. So you want to climb up that ladder of lead generation. That's a phrase that Blair uses as well. 
and climb as high as you can, which would be like a book or, or a keynote or something like that. And those are related. Obviously, you get more keynote opportunities with a book. And, and then you can work down. If you don't have access to that sort of thing, then you might do a podcast or a webinar or you might have a, a really popular blog. And I've experimented with those different things. And, and I, t- I tell you what I really want people to do is just pick a couple of them and be disciplined about mm-hmm. it. And it'll typically work. Even if it doesn't work in the process, you'll figure out what you believe about something. You will you will sharpen your own perspective on the insight that you're charging people for by being disciplined in your lead generation, because you'll have to come up with that insight that you're sharing with other people. Mm, Well said. So, David, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I would hope it would be that they would be more courageous around their own positioning decision. And there's lots of help in the book about how to do that, why to do it, and so on. But the big, the big message would be that. Be more courageous about how you position your expertise. That'd be the message. Well said. <laughs> I've read this book almost twice now. So, And you're going to be doing this yes, yourself, right? Yes. By the end of 2017, all of your readers and listeners are going to go to your website. And what's going to happen if you don't do that by the end of 2017? Well, I've committed it here publicly, so okay. I, will, I will look incompetent. As long as that, <laughs> yeah, as long as that doesn't get edited out, right? Right, right. So <laughs> what books have inspired your work and career? Oh, wow. You know, so I, I owned a, an agency for six years before I started advising other uh, entrepreneurial experts. And I remember one of the most influential books way back then was The 20, 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing. Mm. Remember that? Yeah. Uh, just, you know, so simple, but... Like these are the the books that I stick with me are the ones I'm thinking. I just give myself a dope slap and it's like, why didn't I write yeah, that? Yeah, in like, fact, I used to describe those books as being kind of punchy. They were they yeah. were like a two by four between the eyes sometimes. Really clear though. Yeah, short. It was a short book, very concise. That was one. David Maester has always had a big influence on me. You know, the the trusted advisor in particular, or managing the professional services firm, or strategy in the fat smoker. More recently, I think Ryan Holiday, I've really enjoyed two of his books in particular. One I haven't read, but I'm I'm I haven't finished. I'm in the it's in the process of making your book a perennial oh, seller. Yeah, I had him on the podcast. What a book. Oh did you? Yes. Oh. Is that good? Oh. Okay. So I, I haven't finished it. I thought that was good. I the, the one thing I really hold against Ryan Holiday is that he's behind a lot of the success for, you know, the 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 four hour work Tim week Ferris guy. Is a client. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I just like, oh man, that's just too bad. But uh, <laughs> yeah, and you mentioned in the book too of his others that are, I mean that are just such phenomenal books. The obstacle is the way, and ego is the enemy. Yeah, so he's he's the kind of writer I would like to be. He researches so well, and I think his career is to the point where people buy a book even if they don't know what it's about yet. That's the kind like Anne Lamott is another. R- writer like uh-huh. that, where I'll buy anything she writes because I just trust her perspective on things. So yeah, those are high up on my list. For yeah. Sure. And the wisdom from Ryan Holiday is amazing. He's 30 years old. Oh, it just pisses me <laughs> off. Like, Are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? Yes. So we, we've talked about Blair a little bit. He's my sort of co-conspirator. He's coming out with a book on pricing 
uh, creative services that I have uh, read already, and it's remarkable. So I, I can't wait to go back through that book. It's coming out in a couple of months. We're actually going to be doing an event together in London in a few weeks where we're we're interviewing each other live on stage in front of a large audience, and that's the book that I'm most excited about over the next six wow, months or I so. I saw him give a presentation about two years ago. Well, probably then. Yeah, yeah. Probably the same yeah. time when you were the last time you were there. So, yeah, that's great. And I've read his other book, Win Without Pitching. And in fact, I bought it, read it, and then took it to that same conference, the Inbound Conference, few, oh gosh, five years ago, and had him autograph it. Oh, cool. Yeah, now it's worth nothing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, anyway, well, how best can listeners learn more about you and your book? So, if they can go to expertise.is expertise.is. That's the microsite for the book. And there's links to the other things that I do, speaking, writing, and so on. But that's the microsite for the most recent book. It's It's been selling really well. It's on track to sell about uh, 20 times better than my previous best book. So I'm really happy about oh, that. Very happy about that. Yeah. And on Twitter, your recourses, and that's also your, your company website, recourses.com. Okay. So David, how can listeners win a copy of the business of expertise. We're going to give away 10 copies of the book. Okay, so here's how here's how they do it. They they need to go to Twitter and mention your Twitter handle, which is marketing book. They need to mention my Twitter handle, which is recourses, R E C O U R S E S, and then the hashtag expertise.is, expertise.is, and we'll give away 10 copies to the first person the, the first 10 people that, that mentioned that, and uh, we'll, we'll ship them to them from our headquarters in Nashville. Oh, thank you. Very generous. Terrific. Well, thanks very much, and best of luck to the listener. So the name of the book is The Business of Expertise, How Entrepreneurial Experts Convert Insights to Impact and Wealth. The author is David C. Baker. David, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. This has been great fun. This is the best interview I've had so far. Thank you so much. And that closes the book on episode 148 of the Marketing Book Podcast. Links to everything linkable in the interview you just listened to are at marketingbookpodcast.com. And that's also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. And if you have any feedback on or suggestions to improve the show, or perhaps if I can make a book recommendation, or you want to send me a bottle of single malt scotch, I'd love to hear from you. Just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and leave me a message or tweet at me. My Twitter handle is marketingbook or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett. And please join us next time as we welcome James Muir to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his book, The Perfect Close, The Secret to Closing Sales, The Best-Selling Practices and Techniques for Closing the Deal. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. My little brother's friends have been camped out at our place for two days straight. Three. It's because of the Xfinity 10G network. Internet that can handle a house full of screens at once with like basically no interruptions. And it's only getting faster. When I was their age, internet like this was a pipe dream. You sound like my grandpa. Please go home. Introducing the next generation 10G network only from Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. 